0: You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now, on to the show.
1: Hold up.
0: Post your free job
2: on LinkedIn.com slash achieve today.
0: Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Aaron Fleming. Welcome to Red Round Blonde. So this is part two of the murder of Sharon Tate. I want to give you a warning. The murders that I'm going to discuss in this episode were very brutal. And Sharon was eight months pregnant. So just be forewarned that it's going to be pretty rough. But, you know, as I stated in the first part, I think these details are very necessary to hear. Many years have passed, and there's this tendency to find acceptance and forgiveness for those who participated in the murders. So you need to hear the details so that we never allow ourselves to get to that place. In episode one, I left off with where Sharon and the others were on the night of August 8, 1969, and just what they were doing. Abigail Folger was in her room reading, her boyfriend, Wojtek Frykowski, was in the living room, crashed out on the couch. J.C. Bring and Sharon were in her room, on the bed, talking. And little did they all know, this was going to be the last night of their lives. As Joan Didion wrote in her essay book, The White Album, August 9, 1969, was the day the 60s ended. Peace and love had ended. It was now Helter Skelter. I had a very good, accurate timeline of the night from Tom O'Neill's book, Chaos, and Jeff Gwynn's book about Manson. So this same night, a crew assembled in an old yellow Ford at a place called Spawn Ranch. This was a property of about 55 acres, located in Los Angeles County. Now back in the 50s, it was used as a movie set, specifically catered to westerns. In 1953, the place was sold to George Spawn, who added onto the ranch using it as sets and a place for locals to horseback ride. But after some time, it was not used as much, and it was rather desolate. 80-year-old George Spawn still lived there, but he was now alone and nearly blind. He agreed to let a group of hippies live there in exchange for labor. Says the yellow Ford left Spawn Ranch that night. A ranch hand heard a woman yell, We're going to get some fucking pigs. Now that voice was 21-year-old Susan, or Sadie Atkins, as she was known. Sadie grew up in a pretty rough household. Her parents were both alcoholics, and she claimed her brother and his friend molested her sometime after her mother died from cancer. She moved to San Francisco from San Jose, where she got deeply into LSD while working as a topless dancer. There she met Charles Manson at a friend's house. This house was raided not long after, which left her homeless. And believing Manson to be Jesus, she gleefully accepted his invitation to join him and the family at Spahn Ranch. Beside Sadie was another 21-year-old, Patricia Krenwinkel, or Katie as the family called her. In school, she was bullied for being overweight and she had this condition that caused an excess of body hair. When she was 17, her parents divorced. And for a very short time, she thought of becoming a nun. In 1967, she met Charles Manson at Manhattan Beach. When he told her that she was beautiful, she slept with him, losing her virginity. Manson made her feel attractive, which was something she never felt before in her life. She was instantly dedicated to him, and she followed him to San Francisco. Krenwinkel was one of the girls picked up by Beach Boys' Dennis Wilson while hitchhiking. Now, this chance encounter developed into a special relationship between Manson and Wilson. Manson really wanted to break into the music business, and he thought that Wilson would help him, which he did for a while. The Beach Boys even covered a Manson song on a B-side, but they didn't credit him. So from then on, Charlie and the family were constant fixtures at Dennis Wilson's home. And Wilson, believe me, took full advantage of the young girls, all the sex, and all the drugs. Manson was then introduced to record producer Terry Melcher via Dennis Wilson. But eventually Wilson got tired of the hangers-on at his house the family had racked up at least $100,000 in expenses in just that summer. So right before his lease was about to expire on the house, Dennis just packed it up and split. And that left the job of kicking the family out to Wilson's landlord. And at his next place, he was very sure not to let the family know where he was living. Now, in the front of the truck was 20-year-old Linda Casabian, And she was born Linda Darlene Druin and raised in New Hampshire in kind of a working-class home. Her father did abandon her family, leading both parents to eventually remarry. Her mother fully admitted to not giving Linda much attention due to the number of children that she had. Linda then dropped out of high school, headed west got married twice, and gave birth to a daughter. After a very brief reconciliation with her second husband, Robert Casabian, Linda became pregnant with her second child, but he left her to go on a trip to South America. Linda then made friends with a lady named Catherine Gypsy Share, and she introduced her to life at Spawn Ranch. And then last but not least was the driver, Charles Tex Watson. The 23-year-old Texan had a pretty wholesome life growing up, including being captain of his high school football team. After high school, he joined a fraternity, like a lot of guys do, while at the University of North Texas. And while visiting a fraternity brother in Los Angeles, Tex became fascinated by the lifestyle there, mainly the drugs. He dropped out of school, moved to California, getting stoned all the while. One day he picked up a hitchhiker who just happened to be Dennis Wilson. That, meeting some of the Manson women, really lured him into the family. Tex basically became Manson's kind of right-hand man. So when he was told by Manson to go to the former residence of Terry Melcher and, quote, totally destroy everyone and as gruesome as you can, he complied. The women were ordered to follow Tex's instructions. And Tex had declared to the women that they were going to kill everyone inside. So later on, it really became a debate as to who really made the call to kill. Was it Charlie or was it Tex or both? The four drove the 40 minutes from Spawn Ranch Two Cielo Drive, all dressed in black from head to toe. Watson had been at this residence previously, so he was familiar with the layout of the place. He scaled a pole to sever the phone lines to the home, and then the four jumped the electric gate that led to the driveway. They were all armed with buck knives, and they intended to do harm. Watson also carried a revolver, which Manson reportedly only told him to use if necessary. So while Kasabian watched, the others made their way across the grounds to the house. And almost immediately, they encountered a very unexpected snag in their plan. Steve Parent. The 18-year-old had been visiting groundskeeper William Gerritsen to sell him a clock radio. Parent was leaving the residence and had just rolled down the window in his dad's Rambler to activate the gate control. Watson snuck up. He put his gun right in Parent's face. Parent panicked, screamed, and raised his arm in kind of a protective move, yelling, Please don't hurt me. I'm your friend. I won't tell. Watson slashed him so hard on the wrist that it cut the strap of his wristwatch. And then he shot him four times at point-blank range. So he shot him in the arm, cheek, and chest, and Steve Parent died instantly. But surprisingly, no one from the home seemed to have heard the shots, even Garrison in the guest house. Neighbor Mrs. Seymour Knott later said that she thought she heard a few gunshots, but not hearing anything more, she went back to sleep. And the acoustics of the canyon kind of muted the gunshots too. So now the trio was in the clear to enter the home. Watson cut a slit in the screen near the dining room to gain access. So now they're inside the house, and once inside, they stood over the sleeping Wojtek, who upon awakening thought that they were just friends of his there. What time is it, he muttered. Watson pointed his gun at him, saying, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. Atkins then bound Wojtek's hands with a towel from the closet. Watson told her to go find the others in the house. She crept down the hallway, and the first door she came to was Abigail's room. The door was already slightly ajar, so it left enough room for Atkins to peep inside. Folger looked up from her book, and she just smiled at Susan Atkins and went back to reading. So you have to remember, there were always people at the Plansky's home, so it wasn't out of the ordinary to see strange people at all hours of the night. Atkins then made her way to Sharon's room. And there she saw Sharon and Jay on the bed in some kind of deep discussion, and they didn't even notice the strange girl in the hallway. After returning and telling Tex who was in the house and where, she was then instructed to bring everyone into the living room. Patricia, who had forgotten her knife, had to run down to the driveway to borrow Linda Kasabian's knife. So now, at knife point... Susan told each member of the house, come with me, don't say a word or you're dead. At this point, everyone kind of just thought this was a robbery. So they offered up money or whatever the intruders wanted and only produced around $70. Unfazed, Tex took the money and he ordered them to lie face down on their stomachs. So this was of course difficult for Tate who was eight months pregnant. Watson tied JC brings hands with rope behind his back also wrapping some of the rope around his neck he looped the rest of the length around Sharon and Abigail's necks before pitching the rest over a beam in the ceiling Sharon started the cry so JC bring of course got defensive he was very protective of her he told Watson to go easy on her then he lunged towards Watson who shot him twice Jay fell to the ground with a punctured lung and an abdomen wound. And when Jay fell, this is the awful thing, the rope forced the women to forcibly stand on their toes to not be strangled. Then Watson began to stab and kick Jay over and over. The women were terrified because they realized, man, they were really in trouble. After Watson told them that they were all going to die, Wojtek made his move. He figured, what did he have to lose? He had loosened his hands, so he grabbed at Atkins to try to get her knife. But she stabbed him repeatedly in the legs, and he tried to crawl across the floor to escape. Somehow, he managed to get to his feet, and he ran for the door. He made it as far as the lawn before Watson caught up to him. He shot Frykowski twice and then beat him so hard with the butt of his revolver that the right grip shattered, cracking Wojtek's skull. Now inside, Abigail decided to make a run for it, too. She undid her noose, and she ran to the lawn, still in her nightgown. But she was caught by Patricia, who stabbed her 28 times. And then Watson came up, started stabbing her, too. And that's when Abigail knew her fate. She reportedly said, I give up. I'm already dead. Just take me. Somehow, despite his injuries, Wojtek made it to his feet and headed towards the killers. They resumed stabbing him a total of 51 times. I'd like to think that, for all the bad things people had to say about him, that maybe he was trying to protect his friends in one last-ditch effort. Now, back inside, Sharon sat on the floor crying. Her neck was still in this noose. And Atkins sat right beside her to keep her from trying to escape, just like the others. Right by her feet was Jay, her best friend and her former lover, dead on the floor. And Sharon's baby was due in less than two weeks.
1: She tearfully pleaded for her life and the life of her baby
2: For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
0: So I just want to give you some kind of insight into what she was probably feeling. I'm a mother to a son, and I really vividly remember being pregnant, of course. And when it's your first baby, you worry over everything. Every weird pain or feeling just freaks you out. And you're told to do all these things and not to do all these things. I know I worried constantly. I was constantly at my doctor in tears fearing that I had done something wrong. But, you know, it's not all fear. There's also hope. You're always imagining what the baby's going to be like, what they'll look like, what kind of voice they'll have, and what they'll sound like when they begin to talk. Will they look like you or their father? Basically, you just can't wait for this baby to come, and you just spend the remainder of your pregnant days preparing for their arrival. You go over various names before finally picking one out. Sharon and Roman picked Paul Richard. As an expectant mother, you're way more concerned and worried about your baby than yourself. So I'm sure that's what Sharon was experiencing. She begged for her baby's life. She actually begged the killers to take her somewhere just to let the baby be born and then they could kill her. Anything for this baby's life. And let me tell you what happened. Atkins looked her directly in the eye, telling her she had no mercy. And then Atkins and Watson stabbed Sharon in the stomach 16 times. She cried out for her mother right before she died. She would never see the birth of her baby and her baby would never live to be born. Now, the group had been instructed by Manson to leave a sign, something, quote, witchy. And basically, this all had to do with a previous murder and an unofficial member of the family who was in jail for that murder. So let me quickly tell you about it because it is important. Gary Hinman was a friend of the family. Hinman was a part-time music teacher and drug dealer, And he'd sold a friend of the family, Bobby Busillet, $1,000 worth of tabs of mescaline. These drugs were sold to the straight Satans, who said the batch was tainted. Now, Charlie knew that Hedman had some money, so he wanted to get this money back from Gary and then some. Manson also didn't want the straight Satans gang on their bad side because he thought that they were going to be his defense against the Black Panthers. And the Panthers were going to be a part of Helter Skelter, the idea that Charlie had of a future race war. In Manson's words, the black man would rise up and attack Whitey. So his theory was that all the white people would be killed by the black people, except for the family who would be living in the desert. And then once this race war was over, the world would be entirely different, and then the family would reign over civilization. He basically cultivated this concept from a mix of the Bible, the Beatles and Scientology all three things which he quoted frequently. On July 25th, family member Bruce Davis took Buselet, Susan Atkins and Mary Bruner to Hinneman's home. Mary was the very first member of the family: lover to Charlie and mother to his child, Valentine Michael or Pooh Bear named after the main character in the book, Stranger in a Strange Land. Bruce Davis was another of Manson's right-hand men who met Manson way back in Oregon in 1967. Once inside Hinman's home, Bobby Busely demanded repayment for those tainted drugs. When Gary refused, arguing that these drugs were good, Bobby ordered Susan to grab about $1,000 worth of stuff from Gary's apartment. Susan, who was armed with a gun, was almost disarmed by Gary. They fought, the gun went off, but it didn't injure anyone. Bobby then beat Gary until he signed over both of his vehicles. Convinced he had more money, Charlie was then brought to the home by Bruce Davis. And there, Charlie slashed Hinman's ear almost in half with a sword. Charlie then left and the others stayed. For two days, Busele beat Henman, demanding this money. And the entire time, he insisted he didn't have any. When Henman said that he would call police when they left, they knew they had to kill him. So by phone, Charlie told Bobby to make it look like the Black Panthers committed the murder. After Buselet stabbed him to death, he dipped his hand in Henman's blood, trying to replicate a paw print or the Panthers' logo and he then wrote "Political piggy" on the wall. So now back to the murders on Cielo Drive. If police saw a message like the one at Gary Hinman's house, they would then think Buselet wasn't the killer and subsequently be released. At Cielo Drive, Susan dipped a towel in Sharon's blood and wrote "Pig" on the front door of the house, and this was supposed to be their witchy message. The murders were sloppy. Susan thought she left her knife at the house. Tex had pressed the button on the gate to get out rather than scale the fence again. So, on the way back to the ranch, they stopped and dumped their bloody clothes down a ravine, which were later found. The gun and the knives were pitched around some kind of suburbs, and outside someone's house, they used a garden hose to wash off. Finally, they made their way back to the ranch. When they pulled up, Charlie was outside dancing naked with a woman. He leaned into the car, asking them how it went and whether they had any remorse, which no one did. However, Charlie seemed pretty dissatisfied with the job they'd done. I mean, they didn't come away with much money, only $70. And the message that they wrote wasn't enough to link it to Hinman's murder in his mind. So he drove back to Cielo in the truck. And he was going to stage the scene to his liking. He placed a towel over Jay's face and he moved some things around. And his last touch was to leave a pair of eyeglasses that he had gotten from one of the creepy crawls. So let me explain creepy crawling to you. It was something that Manson trained the family to do. They would dress entirely in dark clothing sneak into homes, and rearrange items in the home. No one was ever hurt, and nothing of value was ever taken. So the effect essentially would be that the owner of the home would know that someone had been there, thus instilling fear. Now some think the creepy crawls were a practice run for the murders, but others aren't so sure. The next morning, housekeeper Winifred Chapman showed up to work around 8 a.m., And she'd noticed the cut wires hanging from the telephone pole, but she really didn't think much of it. And she also paid little attention to Steve Parent's car in the drive since the Planskys had people stay over all the time. When she entered the home through the back, she noticed some steamer trunks had been moved, which seemed odd. And then she noticed blood. As she made her way into the living room, she saw the front door was wide open and could make out a body on the lawn. She ran down the drive, screaming all the way. After police arrived and surveyed the slaughter inside the house, they made their way to the guest house. Claiming to have not heard anything, William Garrison was not believed. He seemed confused, possibly high or hungover. When asked who the body was on the lawn, he mistakenly thought it was the housekeeper, Winifred Chapman. Police immediately arrested him for murder. As they took him to the patrol car, an officer pushed the button on the gate, wiping away Texas' fingerprint. And this wasn't all that was muddled at this scene. They tracked bloody footprints all throughout the house. There was evidence found, however. There were some fingerprints, the broken gun grip, and Susan's knife. She did leave it behind. There was also quite a bit of drugs obtained from the home leading police to think that drugs were probably behind the killings. I mean, at this point, they didn't have any idea. Patty Tate vividly remembered hearing about her sister's death. She was just 11 at the time. Her mother, Doris, was notified by phone. She remembers hearing her mother say, my God, Sharon's been murdered. Now, at first, there were just rumors of trouble at Cielo Drive on the radio. They were reporting that a landslide had happened. Now, Doris was worried and repeatedly tried to get a hold of Sharon on the phone, but couldn't get an answer. And then the news reported that it wasn't a landslide. It was a robbery homicide, with one victim possibly being J.C. Bring. So by now, full panic set in. And it wasn't until Bill Tennant, who was Sharon and Roman's manager, called that the news was actually confirmed. Debbie Tate ran to get a neighbor to help their mother who'd collapsed to the ground. Their neighbor, Joan, called and tried to get Sharon's father, PJ, at work. But he'd already been given the news by police and was speeding towards Cielo Drive. So I think this is a pretty good stopping point. There's so much information to discuss that instead of this being a two-parter, I'm going to make it a three-parter. In the next episode, I'm going to discuss the investigation as well as what the Tates went through and the aftermath of the trials. I also want to discuss the mode of Helder Skelter and all the theories behind the killings, and I'll have to touch on the La Bianca murders as well. All of it's pretty haunting, and I feel like I've connected with Sharon on some kind of level. I guess it's because I've been researching it for a couple of weeks, and every day I'm immersed in it and I learn more and more. And every day it really haunts me. It's not that I'm not sad or bothered by the other murders, but there's just something about Sharon that really gets me. It's probably because she was pregnant. I was actually eight months pregnant when I gave birth. Maybe she seemed like just a sweet person. I don't know. Maybe it's both. I just can't shake it, and I think about her a lot. And I guess I really want to get across the horrors of what happened to her and everybody there. I just want to do her some justice. So please tune in to the next episode. Her family really suffered from her loss. And it's really important to know what they went through. And there were some odd things with the trials that I want to talk about. So I swear I'll wrap it up in the third episode. So until then, check out the books I used for my sources. It's Restless Souls. Chaos by Tom O'Neill, which has just come out, and Manson by Jeff Gwynn, and Polanski by Christopher Sanford. I elected to not use Helter Skelter by Vincent Bugliosi due to some things I learned about him in Tom O'Neill's book, which I'll discuss in the next episode. And as always, check out the podcast on social media and join the Red Rumble Facebook group. I really want to thank and welcome our newest member, Beck. So, join the group just like Beck and feel free to post. You can check out the pics I posted from the True Crime Podcast Festival on Instagram. It's been a really good week. I got to see Tarantino's new movie, which is extremely relevant to this week's episode without giving anything away. And I also got to go see forensic pathologist Cyril Wecht speak, which was such a thrill. Man, this man is in his 80s, and he is sharp as a tack. And he talked about everything from Kurt Cobain, John Bonet, O.J. Simpson to JFK. He's very opinionated, and he's surprisingly very funny. I could have listened to him talk for hours. And the talk was sold out. And I thought it was really cool afterward. He patiently sat there and signed everyone's books and posed for pictures without a complaint. It was really a great night. And I think I have an episode idea from one of the cases that he talked about. So anyways, thanks for listening and catch you next week.
1: Hold up!